Last week, <clears throat> talked about the difference between consciousness, perception, mindfulness, and wisdom. Tonight, I'd like to consider the wisdom aspect in more detail. To consider what we actually learn from being mindful and how those insights can lead us to freedom. So in one sutta, the Buddha laid it out very clearly. He said, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. Suppose bhikkhus people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in this jetta's grove, or to burn them or do with them as they wish. Would you think people are carrying us off or burning us or doing with us as they wish? No, venerable sir, because that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. So too, bhikkhus, form is not yours, feeling is not yours, perception is not yours, volitional formations are not yours, consciousness is not yours. Abandon it. What you have abandoned, what is not yours, that will lead, when you have abandoned what is not yours, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So what is not ours? Everything. Right? Form or material elements, feelings, <coughs> perceptions, volitional formations, consciousness. When we abandon or let go of that which doesn't belong to us, it will be for our welfare and happiness. So we can hear this, but I think the question for all of us is how do we accomplish this letting go? This letting go of what doesn't belong to us. <clears throat> our attachment to and our identification with the aggregates both individually, as the individual constituents of our experience, and also collectively, as the concept of self. Our attachment to and identification with these aggregates is very strong. So what insights are necessary in order to cut through these very deeply habituated patterns of attachment and identification. So many of you probably know <clears throat> the story around the Buddha's enlightenment. Now, after his awakening under the Bodhi tree, it said that he spent six or seven weeks in the vicinity of the tree <clears throat> contemplating different aspects of his awakening. And then he wondered, who could I teach this to? Who would <clears throat> be receptive to understanding these profound truths? And he thought of the five ascetics that he had been practicing with for the last six years, practicing the different austerities. And he thought that their minds would be fertile. That would be fertile ground in which to plant the seeds of these teachings. So he journeyed from Bodh Gaya, 
journeyed on foot from Bodh Gaya to uh, Sarnath. In those days, it was called uh, Isipatana, which is a small village across the river Ganges from the city of Varanasi, Benares. And on the full moon of June, he reached Sarnath and he gave the very first discourse to these five ascetics. And that discourse is called Setting the Wheel of the Dharma in Motion. So the first teachings. And in it, again, as you're probably familiar with, he laid out the middle path between the extremes of self-indulgence on the one hand and the other extreme of self-mortification. He laid out the middle way. He laid out the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. And all of this really became the framework for the next 45 years of his teachings as he wandered northern India. So upon hearing this first discourse, setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion, one of the five ascetics, Kandanya, became a stream enter in hearing the teachings. And then over the next few days, as all five practiced, the other four also became stream winners. Then the Buddha gave his second discourse to this group of five. The second discourse is called the Anatalakana Sutta, which is the discourse on non-self. By the end of this teaching, and it's a very short sutta, it's a page or two in length, by the end of this teaching on the characteristics of non-self, all five ascetics became arhants, became fully liberated. So tonight I'd like to begin talking about this sutta and expect the same result. (laughs) So listen carefully. (laughs) The teaching of non-self is really at the heart of the Buddha's realization. But unlike the truths of impermanence and dukkha, which are easily understood, even if they're not fully realized in our lives, but they're not difficult to understand. Now, we can all relate to things changing and to the dukkha of conditioned existence. But the truth of non-self is not so obvious. It really runs counter to our common sense view of our lives and our experience. It seems so obvious that there's an I, there's a me, there's a self here who's navigating through the world. This is how we understand our experience of our lives. And yet it's this very teaching on non-self that led the five ascetics and countless other beings over these last 2600 years to full awakening, to full liberation, what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. So I'd like to begin (coughs) the discussion about this sutta and seeing how we can deepen our understanding of it, both in our meditation practice, but also in our lives. 
And during the during the talk, I'll be I'll be reading from the sutta itself some parts of it. As you listen, you know, to the words of the discourse, listen as if the Buddha is speaking directly to you, just as he was speaking to those five ascetics. Understanding the words not as a philosophic description of life or of the mind. The Buddha is really giving us instructions. He's telling us how to look, how to investigate, how to understand our experience. So if we can listen in that way, there is the potential for realization. In reading from the discourse, there's one word, one Pali word, that I'm going to leave untranslated. And that is the word dukkha. One of the problems in understanding dukkha, understanding what it means, is there is not any single English word that corresponds to its wide range of meanings. And so any one English word is going to give a limited impression of the meaning of dukkha. It's commonly translated as suffering. You know, we read, read or hear the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering, the end of suffering. And sometimes this translation of dukkha as suffering is apt. You know, it's right on the mark. We're all familiar with the pain and suffering that comes in our lives, comes in the body, comes in the mind. So that's part of what dukkha means. But then how do we reconcile the Buddha's statement that all conditioned things are dukkha with our lived experience of many things being pleasurable? There's often a lot of happiness in our lives. So if all conditioned things are dukkha, including pleasure, including happiness, including delight and joy, so what does dukkha mean in that context? Hear words like unreliable, insecure, ultimately unsatisfying. So these terms give a more expansive sense of the meaning of dukkha and what the Buddha was referring to. In listening to the discourse and in the Buddha's use of this term, keep in mind this more expansive meaning. Right? Sometimes it means suffering, but sometimes it means just the basic unreliability of phenomena. Unreliable or unsatisfying because things keep changing. So this is from the Anattalakana Sutta, Discourse on the Characteristic of Non-Self. So thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Benares in the deer park at Isipatana. There he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five. Bhikkhus, 
Venerable Sir, they replied, the Blessed One said this. Before I read it, there's just a little footnote here. It's interesting that in this sutta, he's referring to this group of five as bhikkhus. There were no Buddhist monks at that time. These were were the five ascetics. It was the first teaching. And it points to the meaning of bhikkhu, which really applies to all of us. And Bhikkhu Bodhi has made this comment, that bhikkhus, in its most general sense, refers not only to monks or bhikkhunis nuns, but to anybody walking on the path. And it's clear that that's what it means in this context, because these five ascetics were not yet monks. So throughout the suttas, as we read them or hear them, when the Buddha is addressing bhikkhus, we can really feel included in that teaching. He's talking to us. Okay, so he addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five. The Blessed One said this, bhikkhus, form. And form is the translation of the Pali word rupa. And it's a little, in English, it's a little strange translation because it really means the material, physical elements of the world. And all, all the physical elements. And in many cases, it refers to the body. So when you hear form, that's just like a shorthand for physical elements, material elements, the body. Bhikkhus, form is non-self. Were form, the body, self, then this form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine Let my form be thus. Let my form, my body, not be thus. But because form is non-self, it leads to affliction. And it is not possible to determine, let my form be thus, let my form be not thus. Okay, so these are a few simple sentences that are worth unpacking, because there's a wealth of dharma contained in them. In these few lines, the Buddha is highlighting two aspects that show the relationship of dukkha and anatta, of dukkha and non-self. First, the first aspect is that rupa, form, the body, the material elements of the body, lead to affliction. And second, second aspect he's highlighting is that these elements are ungovernable. They're not amenable to our will. It is not possible to determine, let my body, let these elements be like this and not like that. They are ungovernable. So we need to investigate this, again, not hearing it just as some Buddhist philosophical statement. But we need to see and investigate for ourselves how these two aspects, how they lead to affliction and how they are ungovernable, how we experience this in our lives, in our practice. How do the physical elements lead to affliction? This is not hard to see. 
even if we would prefer not seeing it, not acknowledging it. We can see the afflictive aspect very immediately in some of our very ordinary daily activities. There's the affliction of hunger and thirst. We often don't recognize these very common experiences. We get hungry, we get thirsty. We don't often recognize them as an affliction of the body, an affliction of the physical elements, because I think for all of us, these desires, basic, basic bodily physical desires, are easily assuaged. They're easily fulfilled. We get thirsty and we take a drink. We're hungry and food is offered. But do we really see that it's the dukkha of these bodily needs that drives us to fulfill them? If there was no afflictive component there, we could either fulfill them or not fulfill them, wouldn't be very important. But the dukkha of hunger and thirst drives us to try to fulfill those needs. And as we know from many people in the world, these are not easily fulfilled. And so the dukkha, the afflictive aspect, is even more apparent. We can experience the inherent afflictive nature of the body in the simple necessity of having to change postures to relieve discomfort. At a certain point, whatever posture we're in, we will need to change it and seek some relief. You know, if you're walking, walk for half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, four hours. At some point in walking, you're going to get tired. You're going to need to change your posture, to sit, to lie down. When you're sitting, even very good meditators, an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, At a certain point, the body's going to get very uncomfortable. And there's going to be the need to change posture to relieve the suffering, to relieve the affliction of the physical elements. Even lying down. You know, at one point in my practice, this was way back in the India days, at one point I got so fed up with this need to continually change posture after some period of time, I thought, I'm going to get a thick piece like a foam mattress, very soft. I'm going to lay down flat on my back, no limbs are crossed. This is going to be the pain-free posture. I don't know how long it took. I don't remember now exactly, but it wasn't that long. You know, maybe it was an hour and a half or two hours or something like that. Even lying on that bed of foam, nothing crossed, everything supported, it became uncomfortable, it became painful. 
It's the nature of the physical elements. This is the afflictive nature of them. In all of these examples, we mask the dukkha aspect. We mask the afflictive aspect, either by taking food or taking drink or shifting posture, without really exploring what is motivating us to take the actions, we pass over the suffering that's driving us to do these things. And so we're missing deepening our understanding of what is the first noble truth. You know, that there's an afflictive nature that's there that normally we mask or we avoid looking at. And we commonly mistake this masking of dukkha and all the ways we do with actually having control over the elements. You know, and I think most people go through their lives thinking, yeah, I'm basically in control and I can make myself happy and make myself comfortable. And and we do all of these things to accomplish that. But in the masking of what's driving all those actions, we are not seeing deeply the ungovernable nature of the elements. And this is the second aspect that the Buddha was referring to in this sutta. The first is the afflictive nature of the physical elements, and the second (coughs) is their ungovernable nature. But over time, this ungovernableness of the elements becomes very apparent. We would probably all like to stay young and healthy with a vigorous body that's capable of doing whatever we want it to do. But as you may have noticed, the body does not oblige us in this way. We may want it to stay a certain way, But it is following its own laws. It's ungovernable. The aging process is part of nature. It's part of the lawful unfolding of things. It's not subject to our wish. It's not amenable to our will. Quite without our agreement, the body ages. It gets sick. It's subject to all kinds of illnesses and diseases and eventually dies. We have to kind of open our minds to the truth of this so we don't keep considering all these things as being a mistake. What did I do wrong that I got sick? What did I do wrong that all of a sudden I'm this old? We didn't do anything wrong. This is just the nature of the body, of the physical elements. It's what they do. For this reason, the Buddha said, 
rupa, form, the body, is not oneself. If rupa, if the body were self, we should be able to determine, let it be like this, let it be like this. So this is an experience that we all have. This is not some esoteric meditative understanding that you have to you know, be in a jhanic trance to see. We just have to pay attention, really in the most obvious way, to the nature of our unfolding experience. And then the Buddha's words really come alive. Okay, so we hopefully have some sense of the afflictive nature of the elements, that they are ungovernable. So this continuing in the sutta. What do you think, bhikkhus? Is form permanent or impermanent? Okay, you can answer to yourselves now. Remember, it's the Buddha speaking to you. Is form, the body, permanent or impermanent? Clue, impermanent. <laughs> impermanent, venerable sir. Now, is what is impermanent dukkha or happiness? Dukkha, venerable sir. Again, dukkha in its expanded sense. Is what is impermanent reliable or unreliable, satisfying or unsatisfying? It doesn't only mean suffering. Now is what is impermanent dukkha or happiness? Dukkha, venerable sir. Now is what is impermanent? We're talking about the body now. We're talking about these physical elements. We're talking about our experience of them. So it's not abstract. It's the immediacy of our experience in this body. Now is what is impermanent, all of these elements, what is dukkha and subject to change? Is this fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this is I, this is myself. Okay, just think about it for a moment. So it's not just a rote phrase here. Does it make sense to talk of this body, which is constantly changing and not subject to our will? What would it mean to call itself if we can't shape it or form it or determine it to be how we would like it to be? The idea of self, when we really examine the nature of this body, we see that the notion of self doesn't make sense. So the question then is how can we deepen our understanding and realization of these truths? Because we can hear it and apply it and Hopefully, on some level, it's making sense and we can relate to it. But how do, we, how do we really deepen our realization of it so it transforms how we live?
how do we learn how to keep these truths of the changing, unreliable, non-self nature of the body? How do we keep them, at least at times, in the forefront of our awareness? So it's not just something, you know, we may touch in on retreat, but how are we living from this place of understanding? There's one collection of suttas called the Anguttara Nikaya, which is translated as the numerical discourses. And in it, the Buddha taught a series of reflections that really can have a powerful effect both in our formal meditation practice and in our lives. And this last winter I was on a self-retreat for a couple of months and I was just looking through this collection. It's a big, it's over a thousand pages. So I was just opening it randomly and I came across these particular reflections. And it was amazing. I, I started to apply them in my practice and there was an amazing effect. Okay, so this is the first of the reflections that bring to life the understanding that the Buddha is talking about in the Discourse on Non-Self. Because there are these five themes that should often be reflected upon by a woman or a man, by a householder or one gone forth. What five? I am subject to old age. I am not exempt from old age. I am subject to illness. I am not exempt from illness. I am subject to death. I am not exempt from death. I must be parted from everyone and everything dear and agreeable to me. We need to let this in. I am the owner of my karma, the the heir of my karma. I have karma as my origin, karma as my relative, karma as my resort. I will be the heir of whatever karma, good or bad, that I do. So frequently practicing these five recollections, they serve as a reminder and a wake-up call to what is true. I am subject to old age, I am not exempt from it. I am subject to illness, I am not exempt from it. I am subject to death, I am not exempt from it. I will be parted from everything that's agreeable, I am not exempt from that. I am heir to to my deeds, to my actions. When we reflect on this, they keep reminding us of the truth of them, and they free us from the delusion that often fills the mind in our lives, that somehow we can avoid these aspects of life, that somehow they happen to other people. And so we just keep reminding ourselves. 
a story that I've told often over the years, but it kind of highlights this. You know, at one point I was teaching a course uh, at a wilderness ranch in New Mexico, Vallecitos, and it's set in the beautiful mountains of northern New Mexico, right in the middle of the wilderness. At the end of the retreat, we had gone on a hike along the river that runs through it. On the way back to, to where we were all staying, it had rained and I slipped on a rock and I hyperextended my knee. And it was just one of those moments. And I knew something <laughs> not very good had happened. But I managed to actually get back you know, to where we were staying. And that night, I was sitting cross-legged in those days. And I was giving the talk. And there was this little voice in my mind that said, better not sit cross-legged. But I didn't listen to that voice of wisdom. So I sat and gave the talk. At the end of the talk, I couldn't stand. I couldn't put any weight at all on that knee. And I had to be carried. <laughs> I had to be carried to my room. It was a little embarrassing. And that whole night, my mind was just really in a disturbed state because I had a very busy teaching schedule over that summer. And I was just, well, how am I going to manage this? I can't, I can't stand. I can't walk. And somewhere in the middle of the night, as I was feeling kind of a lot of anxiety and worry and wondering about all of this, somehow this mantra of understanding came. And it was amazing because it really changed my attitude about it all. And it just said, anything can happen anytime. We can't control these things. You know, because I had been blaming myself and self-judgment and, you know, why wasn't I more careful? Which didn't, of course, help anything. And just when that phrase came to my mind, anything can happen anytime, it was just the acknowledgement of the truth of dukkha, of the truth of non-self, the ungovernability of things. It's not something I wanted or desired, it just happened. And as that mantra came to mind and I let it settle, it was amazing. Instead of anything can happen anytime being a source of like fear or paranoia or you know, I have to protect myself, it was just the opposite. It just allowed my mind to relax into the openness of that understanding. Yes, things happen. These things are going to happen. And in acknowledging that, we no longer have to live defensively. We're not trying to protect ourselves. So it was a, it was a powerful lesson for me. So in a very similar vein, the Buddha emphasizes this universality of the nature of the body. And this is a further reflection. And I think it's helpful to understand the universality of it, because so often when something happens that we don't want and is undesirable, somehow we think it's all about me. But it's not. Because for the instructed noble disciple, and here, <laughs> he's so good. <laughs> it's so straight. <laughs> for the instructed noble disciple, 
what is subject to old age grows old. When this happens, he reflects thus, I am not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old. I'm not the only one who's aging. Everyone, what is subject to old age grows old. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to illness grows ill. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to death dies. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to destruction is destroyed. I am not the only one for whom what is subject to loss is lost. So he's just laying out so clearly, reminding us that this is the universal aspect of our lives. This is true of all of us. It's just the nature of things. It's the Dharma. Dharma means law. When we reflect in this way, we understand that we are all part of this great matrix of life and destruction, of life and death, of creation and destruction. And then when we live with this understanding that we're all part of this, it brings about a much greater sense of ease. This understanding really brings us to a place of peace with all of these cycles. There's a story of the great African-American tennis player, Arthur Ashe. He contracted HIV from a transfusion. He was in the hospital for a heart bypass surgery. And he contracted HIV from the transfusion. And afterwards, he started going around trying to educate people about HIV and AIDS. And when he was asked about the illness, he had a wonderful response. He replied, if I were to say, God, why me, about bad things, then I should have said, God, why me, about all the good things that happened in my life. You know, and it's such a just a beautiful understanding that the good things, the bad things, they're all part of a life unfolding. So as a way of developing this heightened awareness of all of these aspects that life brings, the Buddha spoke of the great benefit of mindfulness of death. So this is a very powerful part of the Buddha's teachings. He said, bhikkhus, mindfulness of death, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having deathless as its consummation. 
but do you bhikkhus develop mindfulness of death? Okay, so he's given a lot of importance to this practice of recollecting and being mindful of death. So he was addressing a group of six bhikkhus here, and each one of them replied saying how they developed this mindfulness. Now often when we read this kind of situation in the suttas where the Buddha will ask a group of bhikkhus you know, a question like this, and then each one will give a reply. Very often, the Buddha will hear all the replies and praise each one for offering their particular perspective on the practice. But here it was a little different. So the first, the first bhikkhu in reply, how do you practice mindfulness of death? The first bhikkhu said, May I live just a night and day so that I may attend to the Blessed One's teachings. Okay, so he's keeping death pretty aware. I may die by the end of the night and the next day. The second bhikkhu said, May I live just a day attending to the Blessed One's teaching. The third bhikkhu said, May I live just the length of time it takes to eat a single alms meal. Okay, so that's getting pretty, keeping death that much in the mind, just the length of eating a meal. The fourth bhikkhu said, may I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow four or five mouthfuls of food. Okay, so just, just picture yourself contemplating being mindful of death just within the the duration of four or five mouthfuls of food. I'm keeping that awareness present. And the fifth bhikkhu said, May I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow just a single mouthful of food so that I may attend to the Blessed One's teachings. And the sixth one said, May I live just long enough to breathe out after breathing in and to breathe in after breathing out. So that I may attend to the Blessed One's teachings, I could then accomplish much. It is in this way that I develop mindfulness of death. Okay, so there's six replies. Now the Buddha's response surprised me. This is the first time I had been reading this, so I'm, I'm reading this whole dialogue and the six replies. And then I get to what the Buddha replied, and it came as a bit of a shock. He said, with regard to the first four, right, night and day, a whole day, the length of a meal, four or five mouthfuls of food, with regard to those, those first four, these are called bhikkhus who dwell heedlessly. They develop mindfulness sluggishly for the destruction of the taints. But with regard to the last two, these are called bhikkhus who dwell heedfully. Right? Just one mouthful of food, just in in-breath, just in out-breath. These are called bhikkhus who dwell heedfully. They develop mindfulness of death keenly 
for the destruction of the taints. Therefore, bhikkhus, all of us, he's talking to us, therefore, bhikkhus, you should train yourselves thus. We will dwell heedfully. We will develop mindfulness of death keenly for the destruction of the taints. So what was surprising to me when I read this, my first impression was that all six were doing pretty well. You know, in keeping mindfulness of death present, yeah, for, for night and next day, for just the day, for a meal, for five mouthfuls of food, certainly more mindful of death than I am for the most part. So when he said, oh, those, those are bhikkhus who are practicing sluggishly, <laughs> hmm. But what happened when I read this and, and saw what the Buddha was pointing to, and especially being on retreat, it really motivated me. Okay, can I apply what he's saying here? Can I actually put this into my own practice? You know, many of us have the desire and the aspiration to die as consciously as possible. And I think that that's probably an aspiration we all share. To be interested and aware in the whole process of dying, of leaving this life for whatever may come next, But will we actually be able to maintain awareness at that time? The Buddha's instructions about training ourselves to dwell heedfully, to develop mindfulness of death keenly, has a very surprising benefit. Not only does it keep this great truth of the fact of death, and that we are not exempt from this, not only does it keep it right front and center in our awareness, in our consciousness, which would provide a very different perspective on most of our daily activities, but reflecting on death keenly just this mouthful of food, this in-breath, this out-breath, this step, helps the mind to settle back completely into the moment. You know, in, in one of James Joyce's novels, he wrote the line about one of his characters, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. I think that applies to most of us. You know, we go through our lives very often living a short distance from our body. When I started bringing this reflection into my practice, and I started with the walking meditation and then brought it into the sitting, it was amazing the effect of it. 
mindfulness of death with this step, with this breath, just the remembering of that. I wasn't doing anything else. I was not making any special effort. I was just remembering mindfulness of death. It was amazing, the effect on the mind. The mind immediately, upon remembering, settled back completely into the present moment of that step, of that breath, of that mouthful of food. No longer caught up in some anticipation of some sense desire or even of some better meditation experience. So it was like an immediate dropping into the moment. And what was so surprising to me was the effortless quality of it. All it took was remembering. And not even, it didn't even require thinking about it. It was just the remembering, mindfulness of death. The mind sank into the moment, sank into the present in the most easeful way. So this is a powerful meditation to incorporate into your practice. It has an immediate effect and it will It will show you the power, you know, of, of this practice. And when the Buddha says, mindfulness of death when developed and cultivated is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having the deathless as its consummation. This is not an insignificant practice. And I think if you experiment with it and see for yourself, I think you will find and perhaps be as amazed as I was at the immediacy of the effect. So it's not, it's not that it's something, you know, we'll practice for five years and then maybe, you know, we'll see some benefit. The benefit is immediate in the very moment of remembering. So I would very much encourage you to practice in this way. Another surprising aspect of this mindfulness of death is that it actually uplifts the mind. You know, to an ordinary person out in the world, and they asked you, oh, what do you, what do, you do at the forest refuge? Oh, I practiced mindfulness of death. <laughs> Most people would probably, oh, that's kind of a morbid topic. But the practice of it, the practice of it actually uplifts the mind. We feel more alive from our awareness of death. So again, I would really encourage you to experiment, investigate, and see for yourself how this practice can be integrated into sitting, into walking, into eating, as you're moving about through the day. 
again, it wasn't even about thinking. It was just remembering mindfulness of death. So the Buddha then concluded this part of the Anatalakana Sutta with these words. Seeing thus bhikkhus, And again, the, the, the thus is, now what is impermanent, what is dukkha, and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this is I, this is myself. No, venerable sir. So seeing thus, because a noble follower finds disenchantment in form, disenchantment with the body, with the physical elements. Experiencing disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. When liberated, there is knowledge that one is liberated. One understands birth is exhausted. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done is done. Of this, there is no more beyond. Let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.